You're listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, in 2017, Donna and I had the opportunity to visit Jerusalem, and we went one day to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's a beautiful church, a thousand plus years old, that's on the historic site of the death and burial of Jesus. And we showed up there. It's, it's amazing to see this gorgeous church, but when you walk up, you see how beautiful it is. But then there's a, a ladder just kind of sitting above the door next to a window, it's a bit odd. I remember asking our guide, why, why is there still a ladder up there? Are they working on something? It seems like an old ladder. Can they take it down? And he explained to me, well, Ben, there are six different sects of Christians that, that have a claim on this building. And there's been a lot of animosity working out who gets to move where, when, do what, has power over which door, which window. And as they've been working out who gets to control what, no one's been able to decide whose ladder that is. And so it stayed up there for decades. Which sounds crazy, but you know, it wasn't too long uh, before that moment that uh, the international news had a heyday reporting upon one of the sects leading a holy procession towards the tomb of Christ and another group of monks in holy arraignment got in their way and a melee broke out. And there was video of it. You see monks flying in from the back, Superman punching other monks. Their form was terrible, but the, uh, you could see the animosity there. And as the international news covered this story, you could read these articles and they just felt like they had a smirk. That here at the this space that's meant to be the heart of Christianity, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the followers of Jesus can't get along. And it's meant to be in some ways an embarrassment about us. That Christians fight and it can be ugly. Uh, Spinoza, the Jewish philosopher of the 17th century, said, I've often wondered that persons who make a boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred. This, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Gandhi, who uh, was in some ways attracted deeply to Christ, built much of his philosophy off the Sermon of the Mount, struggled with the exclusive claims of the deity of Jesus. He couldn't handle Colossians chapter one, the exclusivity of Jesus being above all things and in him all things hold together. And yet he was drawn to the Sermon on the Mount, went to the West, hoping to see the virtues of Jesus lived out among the people of Jesus and was disappointed to see he did not see the kind of overwhelming, compassionate love espoused in the life of Jesus manifest in his people. And he was asked at one point about his thoughts about Jesus. You quote him so often, why don't you trust him? And he said, I love your Christ, but so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, let me say this. There are Christians all over the world right now selflessly laying down their lives for others. So this isn't a bash Christianity fest. And let me say this too, that Christians don't corner the market on animosity. You look through human history, human beings have trouble figuring out how to get along. Our human story is a wash with blood of enemies warring against each other. 
And we're dealing with it now in America today. We're all, I think, asking the question, can we get along? Do we even know how anymore? Uh, Gallup has done a poll for decades in America where they ask the question, uh, would you say that relations between white and black Americans are very good, somewhat good, somewhat bad, or very bad? And uh, around 2004, white people, 74%, said that relations among white and black Americans are good or somewhat good. 68% of black Americans said the same. Relations between white and black Americans are good, pretty good. And if you look from about 2001 to 2013, it's about the same. Somewhere in the 70 percentile of white Americans say, hey, relations between white and black Americans are pretty good. And about 60-something, 65% of black Americans said the same. But about 2014, you see a, a dip begin to occur. You get to 2020, that same question was asked, 46% of white Americans say our relations are good, 36% black Americans. It's cut in half. Now you can ask why, and we'll say, hey, uh, racism is on the rise in America, or you can say, no, it's a racism that's always there, now it's being uh, brought to the fore. You could say that, hey, the media is, is championing it and haranguing us with this. If it bleeds, it leads, and so they're putting a lot of animosity out in the news. Some people say, no, it's a political tool, uh, polarization for mobilization. You, you can try to find all this causation, and I'm not arguing any of those causes. There's probably a mix of all of them in all of this, that there's real tragedies and real using of those tragedies, etc. But all I'm saying is this poll shows us that you look around at us today and we're saying more than the last few decades, I don't know that we know how to relate to each other well. We're, we're struggling in how to relate. Uh, CBS did a poll uh, in January where they asked Americans, what is the greatest threat to America? Americans were asked, what is our greatest threat? 8% said foreign countries, 17% said the natural world, COVID. 20% um, said economic forces, but 54% said other Americans. That's historic. That when asked, what's the greatest threat to America? We said us that we don't know how to get along, right? And that's a human story. America doesn't corner the market on animosity in, among race or any other way, that it's a global phenomenon. We hurt one another, right? But the Christian is meant to model a different way. We have access to a source that allows us to live differently. So the apostle Peter will say in his epistle, we are meant to adorn the gospel. We're meant to dress it in clothes that fit with it. Not to try to dress up our message to look better than it is. He said, we are meant to arraign ourselves in clothes that accentuate the positive features of our gospel. The Christian's meant to dress in a way that's commensurate with the gospel. And that's the language Paul's using here. Paul has said that Jesus Christ has created a body of Christ, that it's been knit together. Greek, Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is all and in all. That Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, purchased a community, a family across all these different lines of animosity. He's knit us together as close as a body is to one another, as close as the hand is to the finger. So we are knit together as a body. And it's fascinating in this passage, Paul's used that imagery over and over again. Jesus has made a 
body. And now as he gets to this application section of how we're meant to live, he uses the imagery of clothing. Now the body of Christ is meant to take off certain clothes. There's outfits that don't fit the Christian, right? And then he says, but there are other clothes we are meant to put on. And that's the question of today. What is the proper fashion of the people of faith? And I know all of you probably have a copy of Church Vestments, their origin and development. We could sit here and read through this. You wonder the sorts of things your pastor studied in seminary. What is the proper dress of Christians? The different answers have been given throughout the ages of different kinds of robes or vestments or haircuts. You shave the top and leave the crown of hair. That was a good look. Uh, different jewelry you could wear. Or there's an appendices in the back about proper sneakers and gold chains. Uh, you know, just different things you wear to express your faith in different ways. And yet here's the interesting thing. Paul doesn't talk about the, the physical clothing at all. He says, you want to know how the Christian's meant to be clothed? We are clothed, and we're going to look at this passage, we are clothed with compassion, and we are tailored with truth. What does the world need to see as we engage the world? They need to see what we have, and what we have is we are clothed with compassion. We are tailor-made with truth. How do the people of Jesus walk through a culture in crisis together? We're about to see it in this passage. And these are our two major headings, but there's a lot of ways Paul will fill this out. So these first couple verses are about how we're clothed with compassion. You see in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony." So he says, put on like clothes, and then Paul will do something interesting. Paul will never give us action. He won't go very far into action before he gives us motivation. Because for the Christian, our activity is always an effect, not a cause. We don't do things to earn God's approval. We do things because we are God's people. And so he'll say, put on then, and he's going to tell us five dispositions to put on and three actions they should produce. But before he even gets to them, he gives us two motivations right here at the beginning. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Why put on compassion? He gives you two reasons. One, he says, then, or therefore, it calls you upward. In light of a previous reality, we should put on compassion and meekness and patience. What's the previous reality? Well, the verse right before it is where he says, in Christ there's therefore now no Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He says, this is essential for us because Jesus has decided to knit together a community and then Paul purposefully names all the fault lines that split humanity, not just Christians, humans. We split along mistrust among different races, ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds, that humanity divides on all these friction points. Paul names them. He's not afraid of them. But he said, Jesus, for God's glory, knit together a humanity purposely across these bonds of human hostility to show the power of God to make a family out of formal hostile parties. So he says, God purposely knit together people who don't naturally get along. He said, and he's done that on purpose. So because he's knit together people that maybe aren't natural affinity groups, you're going to need to put on some compassion and some patience and some kindness. You're going to need this. It's essential. 
But it's not just essential, it's also logical. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What's beautiful about that, and we've said this before, those were titles of Jesus. He is the chosen one. He is the holy one. He is the beloved, And Jesus gave those titles to you and to me. He chose you, weak and foolish as you are. He made you holy, set you apart unto God, made you pristine and clean by his grace. And you are loved. You are the beloved. It is the most true thing about you if you are in Christ. You are chosen, you are holy, you are loved, and you don't deserve any of that. He freely gave it to you. And so he did that to us. The chosen, holy, beloved one said, you are chosen, holy, and beloved. So when you look at each other, the people I bled out for, choose each other. Understand that I made you for each other and love each other. Manifest my attributes in my body. Dress like me. Look like me because I gave my life to knit you together. So it's essential and it's logical. We're gonna need these attributes and they've been purchased for us in Christ. He already bought the outfit, we just gotta put it on. So what does it look like? He gives us five dispositions that promote three actions as we talk about how to be clothed with compassion. So the first attribute is put on compassionate hearts. That's literally compassionate hearts. He uses the word splagnitsima. It's uh, lower intestine, guts. You are meant to have a gut level concern for other people, that at the deepest part of you, you have co-passion. That means pain. If you're in pain, I hurt with you. I don't stand aloof from the hurting of other people. I care. In the Old Testament, this is one of the most fundamental and championed attributes of God. Over and over again in the Old Testament, it says the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. Do you know, want to know what he's like? He cares. And the great manifestation of that was uh, in the Exodus, that he came to Moses and said, I have seen the pain of my people. I have heard their cries, so I have come down. When I see my people hurting, I hurt with them and I move towards them. It was his motivation to send Jesus. John the Baptist's dad in Luke chapter one says, because of the tender mercies upon high, the sunrise will visit us. The tender mercies of God that he talks about there, it's the same words translated here, compassionate hearts. Because the deep gut level concern God has for our pain, he sent Jesus. That was one of his most motivating factors. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, this same thing motivated him. Do a study of the word compassion in the gospels. It was constantly motivating Jesus to act that when he saw the pain of others, he moved towards them. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. So he taught them many things. He had compassion for those who were sick. And so he healed them. He had compassion for the dead. So he resurrected them. That you see Jesus's compassion motivated into action. And in several of his stories, the key attribute of the hero was compassion that if you hurt, I hurt. Paul said it was the animating factor in his life as he began to teach about it as well. This is Christianity 101. What happens when you come to Christ? You care. You care about the suffering of other people. Now, does that mean you might agree on all the ways that suffering should be alleviated and how that money should be allocated and whether it's the church's role or the government's role? Hey, we can get into specifics of how we care for each other. But don't skip past the important point that fundamentally and first as Christians, we are meant to care. If you hurt, I hurt with you. 
over whatever issue it may be. I, I mentioned last week, we were on a call with several pastors in the community and it was after the shootings in Atlanta that happened at all these uh, massage parlors and uh, multiple pastors spoke who were Asian American and, and they had different ways to even understand the, the details of what happened. But what I loved about the way this meeting led was, hey, even though we're un- there, there's mixed uh, ideas of, of what happened and how it should be dealt with, the main thrust of the meeting and the way it was led by the pastors who were guiding it was, but just tell us how you feel. And they kept encouraging these pastors to share how they feel. And there was something powerful and cathartic about just caring about the pain of somebody else. It was powerful. And I got to tell you, I I rarely lead meetings like that. I have a hard time tapping into that. Let's just talk about how you feel. And some people will go, what good does that do? That's not the end, but it's where we must always start. That if you're hurting, I want to hear about it and I want to care. This is the Christian's call. And so I have co-passion. I hurt when you hurt. And then you add to that kindness. Selfishness and indifference is anti-Christian. That we are not meant to be indifferent about the pain of others. And so I have compassion about your pain. And then I have kindness towards you. Kindness is a desire to help. An inclination to act on your behalf which again is a major motivator in Jesus's life. It's it's one of the favorite words in the Old Testament to talk about God's readiness to help us. It's a major theme in the Psalms. God stands ready to help you when he sees that you're in pain. You see it in Titus. When the goodness and the kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. God's desire to help us motivated him to send Christ. And so now as the people of Christ, I care when other people are hurting and I have an inclination and a desire to alleviate that pain. That's what kindness is. When I see a problem, I ask how God am I meant to be part of the solution? So I I read a report in uh, 2017, uh, Washington, D.C. won the prestigious award of being the most literate city in America, the most well-read, while simultaneously being one of the most illiterate cities in the country. And you go, how does that happen? Well, we've got some disparity in in our city and we can debate all of how, why, whatever. And we can say, hey, I didn't get here to get involved in all the city's problems. I got here to advance my career, make a bunch of money and leave. Well, okay. But as a Christian, we look and say, hey, guess what? Man, God has changed my life. Let me have a disposition to act. So when I hear stats like that, hey, I, I, I know how to read and there's other people. Some say a quarter of the adults in D.C., are lacking the ability to read proficiently, which is gonna hurt their chances to get a well-paying job. You can hear that and maybe your call is to be a part of that, but all of us should feel the inclination of, God, how do I help solve that? God, if that's a problem we can alleviate, how do we lean into that? And that's one of the things I'm happy to say is as we do things like uh, Love DC, which is coming up in a few months, that's part of us as a church saying, hey, as the people of Jesus, that's a solvable problem. Let's help. Let's help people in some tangible ways develop a skill that will help them succeed in life. I, I can feel your pain and I have an inclination to alleviate that pain to the best of my ability, right? So compassion, kindness, humility. H- humility here doesn't mean I think of myself as less than or I'm not that great. Jesus was humble and he thought he was pretty great, right? And yet Jesus modeled humility. What does it mean? It means a willingness to disadvantage me for you. That's what Philippians says. Jesus Christ, who was in the very form of God, didn't take that comfort and glory as a thing to be grasped unto himself, but he alleviated his advantage, took on the form of a servant. Why? For our advantage. So we wouldn't die. 
He, he disadvantaged himself for our advantage. And then Philippians, he says, now you're meant to do the same thing. We're meant to come to each other with a humility. I, I am moving towards you to help you and I'm willing to disadvantage me for the sake of you. Meekness, that's another word that I, nobody gets tattooed on themselves. Uh, it doesn't sound like a great word. It sounds small. But again, Jesus said it about himself. It was one of his defining characteristics. He said, I am gentle and lowly. I am meek. What does he mean by that? Meekness there means gentleness, courtesy, kindness. That when I see someone who's hurting, I, I, I'm not harsh with them. I care. You go, well, what if that person's caught in sin? What if it's someone in our church that, that is doing something that I know is wrong? I'm supposed to blow them up online, right? Well, Galatians 6 says, brothers, is anyone caught in any transgression? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Should you confront somebody when you see their life going astray? Yes. But don't just load up the confrontation without a spirit of gentleness that I want to see you restored and I'm going to be kind even as I maybe say some hard things to you. But what if they're teaching false doctrine, Ben? If they're false teachers, I have to make a YouTube video about them to excoriate them. Second Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, correct your opponents with gentleness if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people. Can I vigorously oppose your beliefs and still respect you as a human being. Francis Schaeffer did that. That was challenging for me as a young man to say that he would go and said, my goal is he was invited to debates all the time. Francis Schaeffer was like the C.S. Lewis to the hippies, right, in the 60s. And he said, I won't debate, but I will talk to you on stage in front of a crowd of people if you'd like. And he said, my goal was to strongly oppose the wrong philosophies of people on that stage but so respect them as a human being in the process that it would not at all feel odd for us to grab dinner afterwards. And that's what the Christian's meant to do. Uh, that I can disagree with you, but I can do it with a spirit of gentleness, with meekness and patience. I love the word patience in Greek, folks. It's the word macrothumia. It means for a macro amount of time, I can bear the thumia, the heat, right? Uh, I can take the difficulty of hanging in there with you when you don't get it. So I can be patient with you. I can handle that. Right? It's going to take that when we talk past each other and don't understand each other. I remember for me, early in life, I, talking to my dad, when Jesus was, was blowing up my world in college, I was going to break away this massive worship event with all these college students worshiping God. I, it was just so powerful. And I would talk to my dad about Jesus, and he always kind of had this tepid response to me, it felt a bit dismissive. And I was like, I do not get it. And I was mad at him about it. But I remember once at parents weekend, I brought him to breakaway. And he sat there in the crowd with his mouth wide open. He was like, what is this? And I'm like, well, we sing about Jesus and then read his word and explain it. And he was like, this is crazy. And I remember him saying, if I had a thing like this in college, I would have gone. And I was like, what? I was like, this is what I've been telling you about. Bible study, worship, church. We've been talking about this for years. But then in this moment, as we share this experience, he began to open up about his life, that when he was late in his teens, 
He, he tried reading the Bible, had some legit questions. So as a young man, he set up an appointment with a pastor and asked the pastor if he could meet with him. And he asked the pastor some questions. And the pastor looked at him and said, boy, don't you ever ask those stupid questions again. And my dad quit church, walked away. And he had had some experiences that were pretty painful. And I remember for me as a guy in his 20s, it suddenly hit me. If we had a, a flashcard and I had the word church written on this side and then my definition on the back, word association, church, what do you think of? Me, I would have thought of love, acceptance, people who are patient with me, kind with me, have helped develop me. But my dad, if he had that word church on the back of his, it would have been hurt, hypocrisy, pain. And if we just fought about the word church, we would have talked past each other the whole time. It took humility, meekness, gentleness, patience for us to get to the root issue. And as we did it, I understood my dad better. I understood his pain. I had co-passion. And then he was able to hear what the church is really like and what it's meant to be like and the beauties of Christ. And some beautiful reconciling happens when we can manifest these qualities, right? that Christ purchased for us on the cross. But we're gonna need them all. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience to do what in verse 13? Here's your first action word. Bearing with one another. That word means to put up with each other. I love it. One translation says to continue to put up with exasperating conduct. That is your call as a believer, right? So just know when someone at the church is exasperating you, you say, thank you, Lord for a chance to live into Colossians 3. <laughs> that I get to bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint, that assumes there will be legitimate grievances we have with each other. Will someone hurt your feelings? Yes! Will I? Almost assuredly. All of us will bang into each other in the wrong ways. That's humanity. That's life. But for the Christian, we have a way to solve that. We clothe ourselves with the compassion of Jesus. And so when you do something that hurts me, it doesn't say if you have a complaint against one another, tweet about it. Give a prayer request to your friends. Can you pray for somebody? I don't want to mention his name. His name is Ben S. No, that's too obvious. B. Stewart. And if you could pray for him in his wicked heart, do we just fill this church with gossip? which is cancer to a community? Or if we have a legitimate complaint, do we forgive each other? You know what's beautiful about that word forgive there? There's a word for forgive. This is a bit of a different word. It's built off the word grace. It's even more dramatic. He says, when someone hurts you, you don't just go, fine, don't worry about it. No, it's fine. Because that's not even forgiving anyway. That's saying, I'll hold this resentment until it's useful for me to leverage it for a later date. That's not grace. Grace says your sin stands at its full height and the love of God is taller still. Grace says, I see the hurt. I felt it. I don't deny it. I don't minimize it. But I see the grace of Jesus as a tidal wave that can even wash that wave away. And so because the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. But what if they don't deserve it? Of course they don't. You don't either. That's not the game we're playing. That's not the clothes we wear. We came to a God who forgave us while we were sinners. So we forgive each other while we were sinners, right? 
we tap into a deeper well of grace so we can grace each other even when we hurt each other. We don't walk out on one another. We walk towards each other. We don't cancel each other. We forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's like the final piece of clothing. It's like the belt that holds it all together or the vest, I don't know. It's the piece of clothes you put it all on, agape love, covenant-making love, love that says, I have been bound to you by Jesus, so I will not let go, right? That I choose to remain in his community, working out difficulty, even when it's hard, because that binds everything together in perfect harmony, telos, completeness. Do you want to be a spiritual person? The complete spiritual journey is only worked out in loving one another. So your spirituality will never be complete if you're isolated. If you say, no, Ben, my spirituality is a very personal thing. I read a devotion on my phone, listen to a podcast periodically, and I'm good. No, according to this text, your development will always be arrested spiritually because spirituality always works itself out in the context of community. What will bring you to the completeness of harmony in Christ? It's loving us, a multi-ethnic community across social economic lines bound together in the name of Jesus, loving each other across all these human boundaries. The world sees that and says, whoa, surely God is in their midst. No one's impressed when you like your friends. Everybody does that. But when our love spills across unexpected banks, people will say, surely God is in their midst. Our love for one another as a community gives veracity to the message that we preach. It's a gospel issue. And so that's why in verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. I love that word rule. It's the word umpire. That it call balls and strikes. And the peace there is not internal peace. Let, the, let a sense of serenity guard your heart. Serenity now, Lord, even as these people annoy me. That's not what he's saying. He says, to which you were called in one body. He's saying, corporately, make the commitment that as far as it depends on me, when I interact with this community, I am going to promote the shalom Christ purchased, the mutual flourishing of the human beings around me. And let that be the umpire that determines what's legal and illegal for me to say and for me to do. So when you want to say something to the people of Jesus online, you let the peace of Christ be the umpire. Would Christ be cool with that? Right here over your shoulder. You good with that? No? Okay, delete, right? When you're in a conversation and that person leaves that you're annoyed with and you look over at your friend and you make eye contact and it's welling up, surely now it's okay to throw them under the bus. Imagine the peace of Christ being there and say, does this help strengthen the bonds of unity or am I slowly unraveling them? I'm not unraveling all of them. I'm just cutting at a few of the strands. But a few hundred of us do that and the whole body falls apart. So what am I gonna do? As far as it depends on me, the way I talk, the way I live, the way I move through this community, is it selfish? Selfishness and indifference are anti-Christian the Christian is wrapped in compassion. We love each other. Will this be hard? Yes, 
That's why there's been so many verbs. He's telling you love requires a lot of this kind of effort. Love that's gritty and real and not shallow sentiment is hard. But when the world really sees it, it's beautiful. It's transformative because they won't see a love like this anywhere else. Christ called us to this. Let's manifest it. And one of the key ways in verse 15 is to be thankful. The way he says it there, I thought it was a throwaway line and be thankful. You're like, okay. But you realize he's been talking about gratitude all through this letter. That according to Paul, to the Romans, what kickstarted the chaos in humanity? He said, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks and their foolish hearts became dark. What kickstarts chaos in the human story? A lack of gratitude. And as he's talking to Timothy about the last days, how do you know the world is headed to its final destruction? He says one of the key characteristics of the last days is people will be ungrateful. It's what kickstarted the chaos and it's what will burn this all down. It's a lack of gratitude. So this to Paul is seminal. Complaining is easy. It takes no great skill. Negativity abounds. We are saturated in it online. Can you find things to be grateful for? Can you find things to celebrate? It takes effort to do that, but I wanna encourage you to do it. Consider making a list in your journal of things I'm grateful for. If we're honest, for many of us who journal, it starts with negativity. I don't know where my life's going. I've not made enough money. This people didn't notice me. I'm slighted by this person. I'm filled with anger and bitterness and resentment inside. Amen, I'm off to work, right? And we all kind of know how we can feel to stew in the pain of the world. It's never hard to find tragedy in a broken world. And yet the Christian is meant to push back it and say, but let me see, God, where you've blessed me. Let me see where you've helped me. Let me see where you've been good to me. Let me focus on where you've been so, so kind to me. We are meant to be cloaked in compassion. And yet Paul turns a corner here and says, not just clothed in compassion, but tailored with truth. That's what you see in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He says, I want you to let the word of God, these very words, dwell in you richly. Now, does that mean within you as an individual? No, he says, dwell within you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Again, this is talking corporately as the body. As we speak to each other, what should be our primary words? The words of this book, the words of God should saturate our communication with each other. But for it to fill us as a community, it's got to fill you as an individual. That we are meant to be filled with truth, that it tailors and trims our thinking and our speaking and our living is guided by this word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When you dwell somewhere, you live there. That you take up residence. And it's saying here, the word of Christ takes up residence in your heart. He's moved in. He lives there. It's not a... Airbnb. He didn't VRBO in your heart. He's not even a renter. He purchased your heart with his blood. And then he moved in. And when you move into a place, you decorate it to fit your desires. You don't go, well, these couches were left here. I guess they're my couches. If you show up in a house and the decor is ugly, you say, that couch, out! Those blinds, gone. That rug, ripped up. You begin to change things. 
And you say, I want these kind of pictures hanging on the wall. I want this kind of decor. I want it to smell this way. I'm going to get these kinds of candles. And what Jesus says is, I purchased your heart and I moved in. So when I move in, I get to say what entertains in this house. I get to say what this bedroom is like and what happens here. I get to decide what kind of conversations happen around this kitchen table. I permeate this place because this is where I live. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly means abundantly. It means a lot. The average American today spends seven and a half hours looking at their phone, looking at a screen. 9% of Americans interact with the scriptures on a daily basis. 9%. It's a little bit higher when you ask weekly. It's about 20%. But how much of the Bible are you reading a day? I mean, honestly, maybe here in the church, the most committed people, you reading the Bible for an hour a day? That'd be pretty good. Reading scriptures for an hour a day. So an hour a day versus seven hours a day on social media and the like. Or let's take the average. Some of you are reading the Bible the hour a day. Some of you are reading the Bible zero minutes a day. Some of you five minutes a day. I scroll swiftly on, on my app. So maybe you average out half an hour a day as a church. We spend half an hour with the unchangeable word of God and seven hours with whatever the world brings our day. Let me ask you, who's discipling you at that point? Who's shaping your thinking? Who has tailored your assumptions? Who has formed the way you even think reality works and what a human identity is? And for many of us, if we're honest, when we rarely interact with these words, we judge it by our cultural norms rather than the other way around. Culture comes and goes. Cultural mores shift and move. This word does not change. It is fixed forever. And we're meant to let this word dwell in us richly. And if you say, Ben, if I'm really going to do that, a lot has to change in my life. Yes, it does. And if we're going to look different to the world, we have to show them a very different way of living. And I would submit to you the way the maker of the universe tells us to live within the universe he made is better. And when you live this way, you will be odd. You will be strange and you will be attractive to a world that is stewing in resentment and fear and lust and pain. We will be strange and alluring. That's how it's been in the past. That's how it will be now. But we as a community need to let the word of God dwell in us richly and then dwell in the way we speak to each other richly. Teaching each other. That means sharing with you things you do not know admonishing each other. That means not just teaching you things, but it means correcting where your thinking's wrong. If your spirituality has never involved you pulling a brother or sister aside and saying, hey, I think you're wrong on this. I think the way you're thinking about this relationship isn't in line with the word of God. If you've never done that, your spiritual journey is incomplete. That this is part of what it means to be the people of Christ. It's not just, and the pastor teaches and we all sit there. It's to teach and admonish one another. The admonishing is meant to happen across chairs, even with six feet of difference, distance. Then we say, hey man, I think you're off here. I think you need to change here. I think our lives need to conform to the image of Christ because the world needs to see a community that's full of love and truth. 
When John was asked to summarize Jesus, he said he was full of grace and truth. When I first stepped into ministry, I, I was building a youth ministry from scratch, really overwhelming. I was like, how do you build a ministry from zero? And I had to ask fundamental questions. What even is a ministry? What is a church? What does a church do? And I remember writing this sentence, we are a network of loving relationships through which the truth flows freely. That is what we're meant to be, church. That we are a network knit together in love. And in that love, truth flows freely. In the world today, there seems to be this attempt to divide love and truth. If I love you, I just let you do whatever you want and I just baptize it and call it holy. And if you speak the truth to people, you're just judgmental and mean. But Jesus was filled with grace and truth. I'm gonna come real and say some hard things because I love you and because I care. And I care about you enough to say some things that are hard. Grace and truth go hand in hand. And if we are a compassion-filled, scripture-soaked society, this town will think you are weird and beautiful. And I promise you, this is why we've grown as fast as we have. And this is why we will continue to, because the world is desperately in need of compassion. And it's desperately in need of direction. And we have both. So whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He ends this section where we began it, that Jesus Christ is Lord, not just life coach. He rules all things. And so to say no, Lord, is an oxymoron. We say yes, so that everything, every word and every deed comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If I can't say that thing in Jesus's presence, I don't say it. If I can't do that thing in front of Jesus, I don't do it. But if there are things that he affirms, I say them. If there's things he approves, I do them. I wanna live in accordance with the king because the world needs to see an authority who loves, because that's our king. He is the beautiful mix of grace and truth, of strength and meekness, of courage and compassion. He is the lion and the lamb. Donna and I watched a video last night. I forget the title, it was long. It was like the most terrifying animal interactions on a GoPro. It's very specific, little cameras out there people interacting with large creatures, and it was listing them. Number 10 was a guy that got bumped by a great white shark, and you're like, get out of there, son, right? You know, and all kinds of different interactions with animals through these little cameras that can go places cameras historically have not been able to go. But the number one video, this camera sitting there, and suddenly you see enter the view a lion. And as it's coming up, it's an HD video, crystal clear. And even when it's as far away from the camera, you can tell that thing is big. And it comes right up to the camera and you see that face without an ounce of fear in it. You see the majesty of that muscular body and the size of those paws as it approaches the camera. I'm safely on my couch in the living room and I'm scared. And then you watch that lion approach this man and step forward and hug him. And this man falls to the ground with this lion and begins to rub its mane 
and the lion is patting the man on the head with this enormous paw bigger than his head. And you're watching this video and saying, I don't know about the wisdom of this decision. I'm not sure if I can promote your life choice. And yet there's something majestic about it as we watched it to see an animal with instantly the power and authority to kill you. I'm the king of the jungle. It's my house. But I come with all the power of my authority and I bring the affection of a kitten. It's arresting to watch. And you see the power and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ who made all things, sustains all things, rules all things, and will end all things at the day of his choosing. Step towards us, not with the judgment we rightly deserve, but with compassion, kindness, patience when his disciples don't get it again and again and again. Gentleness with you and me when you fail again when you break every promise, bears with you, forgives you, speaks his word over you, cherishes you, promises to covenant and love and never let go of you until you're made complete. That's the love that's been given to us. And Jesus says, when you step out into the world, dress like me, put on the courage to tell the truth, Step out with the confidence of the fact that you know the majestic and matchless king and carry all that dignity with humility. Carry the power of knowing the truth about the universe with grace. And this body that I gave my life for, fill your interactions with love, compassion, patience, kindness, truth. Sing over each other Sing over each other's psalms and hymns to remind you of my faithfulness. Sing over each other's spiritual songs to stir up reminders of how good I've been. Love each other so that the world will see the beauty of the matchless King. Let them see me through you. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.